Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website, where I aim to help you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. My guest this week is Mike Senior from the Cambridge Music Technology website. You probably already know Mike. He's been on the, the show before. He's a regular and seasoned contributor to Sound on Sound magazine and very well-respected author of two books, the second edition of the second of which, Recording Secrets for the Small Studio, has just come out. So, Mike, welcome back to The Mastering Show. A pleasure as always, Ian. <laughs> Yeah, so this episode, it's still going to be about mastering, honest, but we're going to talk about solving mastering issues at the recording stage. And of course, that's not literally true because we don't have a time machine. By the time you get to the mastering yeah. stage, it's there's nothing to be done about the original recordings. However, there are a lot of challenges that regularly come to my attention at the mastering stage that could have been addressed in the recording stage. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So... The idea we have for this is that Mike is going to suggest a problem to me. I'm going to talk about how I could possibly help improve it in mastering. And then he, we are going to talk about ideas for better ideas for dealing with that at the recording stage. And we have a few different topics. Uh, the first one is broadly speaking about EQ balance. Uh, so, Mike, what's the first challenge you want to set me? Well, I mean, I think anyone who has ever complained about their mix not being quite right, there are probably two things that they've talked about. And the first one is probably that it sounds muddy. And particularly that kind of low mid thing that you kind of feel like you're hearing it through a blanket. Absolutely, yeah. Muddy, thick, congested, just mm. you know, too dense, too much going on, not enough space and um, room for things to to breathe in in the sound overall and you're kind of limited at the mastering stage with what you can do about that you know the, i mean the go-to is to bring out some eq um you mm. know probably some well i was going to say a broad cut but possibly not maybe there's if there's a particular range where all of the, the frequencies are kind of overlapping and building up then you can go in maybe with a with a narrower cut the problem with that of course is that I mean, it, as always, it depends. If it's consistent across the entire mix, then th that EQ adjustment can be a perfect solution. But more often than not, there might be one instrument or group of instruments in the mix that is particularly causing the, the, the muddy feel. So you cor can correct that, but then that's to the detriment of everything else in the mix. Yeah, and I think that's actually why the problem tends to occur and get left. It's because it isn't an easy fix. It's not, it's something that, it's a moving target. And whenever you get a moving target like that, yeah, that's when it tends to, the buck tends to get passed, either from the recording engineer to the mixing engineer, from the mixing engineer to the mastering engineer. By which time, yeah, it is what it is. Um, and, and you go with it. I was going to say one other thing sometimes that can help you with this is dynamic EQ. Um, if you can set it up so that the, let's say it's an EQ cut and it only happens when a particular instrument stands out particularly in the mix, that can help sometimes but it can also be a can of worms so mm. yeah mike let's let's have some suggestions from you on how to avoid ending up with mud in the low mids in the first place it's certainly because i see so many multi-tracks multi getting sent to me i think what you notice is that it's it's not it's not really a problem of the things you think should be the things that are contributing that low mid-range kind of warmth frequencies it's the stuff that is 
contributing it without it being any, any use to the actual music and to the mix. And it's usually because most people are relying on, you know, directional mics, they're putting them up a bit too close, and there's proximity effect on everything. Right. You get proximity effect on your electric guitars, on your, your acoustic guitars, on your snare, on all these instruments, on your piano even. And, if you, and you actually have to take active steps to rebalance that. You know, people are, are used to just miking things too close. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just backing off mics <laughs> a little bit and using mics that aren't directional, using omnis. I mean, that's one of my, one of my little uh, hobby horses is just use omnis. They're great. And they, they don't have the proximity effect issue. So that's definitely one one big thing I would say. I think probably the second one is boundary effect, is when you have your upright piano up against a wall or if you have your guitar amp on the floor. And particularly in a small room, you get this bass buildup towards the edges and corners and boundaries of the room. Mm-hmm. So if you could just lift your guitar amp a little bit off the floor or move your upright piano a bit away from the wall, suddenly you don't have this bass boost, this kind of free and unwanted bass boost that you're, that you're, is built into the room. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you can move into a larger room, immediately all that kind of stuff gets less of a problem. That a lot of acoustics problems get less challenging, actually, in a larger room. So that's, that's, that's a big deal. It's, that's really interesting. Okay, so um, my immediate thought is, especially with Omni mics, don't you mm. then swap one problem, which is kind of cluttered low mids, for another problem, which is too much spill from other things or too much room sound. How do you deal with that? That's what everyone thinks. But the solutions to that are actually better than the problems that are caused or easier to deal with than the problems that are caused by by putting cardio mics in particular up close, I think. Um, you know, you can stick an Omni mic just a bit closer. It doesn't have proximity effect. It doesn't spotlight in the same way that a cardio does because it's an Omni mic. So you could just put it closer. You know, people assume that you can't put an army coaster, and you can. Mm. The other thing is you can you can stick a duvet or something behind it, and immediately that gets rid of most of that issue with the room. Right. So, yeah, no, I, I love Omnis. Omnis are, are just, yeah, they're great. They have such a clearer, more natural sound in a general sense. It's interesting. I, I've never really experimented that much with, with Omnis, to be honest, because the, the recordings that I've done were always done in... A, it was a large room, but it was not enormous, um, and you tended mm. to have all the musicians in there at once so you we had lots of of gobos of you know acoustic panels effectively surrounding the drum kit and the the other different instruments and it was it was all about controlling the room sound um mm. so but i also like that just the, the suggestion of, of backing the mics off a bit and i always think it's you know the there's just a general trend for too much close miking these days yeah uh, you know yeah. it's the we all talk about how great all the, the classic recordings from history sound. And I think I've said this on the show before, when you actually listen to them, a lot of them have a huge amount of room tone in them. I mean, a lot of a lot of cl- <laughs> yeah. classic recording studios from history had far less controlled acoustics than even a typical home studio. You know, they had far less acoustic treatment. They weren't necessarily in optimal shape and all the rest of it. So they actually have very yeah. interesting room sounds that are part of the tone that make up those yeah. records. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, but I mean, part of using Omnis is also just about slightly getting into the mindset of not thinking that spill and a bit of room ambience is the enemy. Kind of counterintuitive in some respects, because people are using these really close mic placements with directional mics, and then they get to the mix and nothing sticks together and they have to add reverb to it. It's like, well, you might as well just allow a little bit more of that spill, allow a bit more of that room ambience in, 
and you won't have to use as much reverb. I mean, obviously, you've got to think about it while you're recording it, but I, I think people are a bit too worried about spill and remembrance sometimes. And I mean, reflections are so important for some instruments as well, like, you know, acoustic guitars and percussion and stuff. If you put a mic too close to that, you're catching a minuscule fraction of what the instrument puts out. You need to get some of the reflections for it to sound anything like a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm already thinking we could talk about most of these topics for most of an episode, but let's yeah. uh, <laughs> let's let's put a pin in that. Anybody who wants to know more about this kind of stuff needs to get Mike's book. Let's move on to the next topic. Okay, well, the other classic example is harshness. You know, it it, it seems like it's it's not bright enough, and yet if I make it bright enough, it then becomes too harsh, and it, and it kind of sandpapers my ears and feels fatiguing. And that, I mean, that's, as a mixed problem, that can be a, a bit of a nightmare. I can imagine a mastering where you have less control. It must be a tough one. It, it really is. Uh, and again, I mean, well, in mastering, you don't have that many tools typically that you can use. Yeah, I mean, I always say 80, 90% of mastering for me is EQ, compression and limiting. So in this case, it's it's going to be EQ. I mean, the thing that I would say is it's often surprising what you can achieve, quite often there will be a particular pain point in, in the EQ mm. spectrum that's causing things to sound harsh. So even in a sound that's got lots of aggressive upper mids, you know, a distorted guitar is, is a classic example, or, you know, a oh, really yeah. strident vocal. Very often you can find one or two points where even quite a small reduction, or maybe it's a much bigger reduction than you think would be appropriate, and actually it just calms everything down. Um, yeah. Again, dynamic EQ can just give you a little bit more control of that sometimes. But it ultimately, you know, I mean, as with everything in mastering, it depends on how the how what kind of shape the mix is in. If if it just is fundamentally harsh and aggressive, then you just kind of have to make it listenable. And sometimes that's to the detriment of the effect that was in, intended. You know, or you have to say, yeah. okay, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable, um, and that's that's the way that it is, and that's the, you know, often that's the way it's intended. Um, so yeah. that's fine, and yeah. you have to, as as always, have kind of have empathy with that, and go with it. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what suggestions you have for helping with that in the recording stage. Well, it is you're absolutely right. It is mostly with with like harshness. It's mostly electric guitars. Sometimes it's cymbals. You know, the symbols are just too bright because they've put a large diaphragm condenser right over the symbols. You know, the brightest bit of a mic pointing at the brightest bit of a symbol and not recording to tape like that that technique was designed for. It's like, yeah, it's a recipe made in hell, that is. But if you, it, it's the guitars usually that are the killer because they're going the whole time often. You know, if it's the big rock guitar Goliath that you, you, you kind of expect on a big heavy rock track. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it actually is just to do with people turning the drive up too much when they're recording. Right. You know, most classic guitar records are made from more than one guitar part. And if you combine guitar parts, they sound kind of fuller and more overdriven than each individual one on its own. Right. So when someone's playing live with a band or whatever, or doing an individual part, they'll try and turn their drive up to match that kind of multi-tracked sound or that big, like, uh, layered sound. And they'll just turn up the drive too much. And you do that and it just becomes hashy and aggressive without any kind of note definition or harmony or chord in it. Mm -hmm. And there's almost no way to, to remedy that with any mix processing at all. So yeah, just turn down the drive like 25%. It's almost like a reflex for me now. <laughs> Whenever I record a guitarist who's maybe not, not had that much experience recording so far. 
That's really interesting. And and how do you do? How do they respond to that? Um, in terms of the feedback they're getting through, you know, the 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 monitoring or the um, the Q mix or whatever it might be, isn't it not a challenge for some guitarists if they want to hear that wall of sound? And actually, mm. you know that you're going to get there eventually, but it's two or three layers down the down the path. Yeah, it's an interesting one that actually because there is a, a way that you can often sort that out is just by putting them in a position where they can actually hear the direct output of their amp. Because okay. normally when guitarists are playing, it'll be like playing at their knees. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you put it on a stand and point it up towards them or on a table or something, and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, that's fierce. And then they turn it turn down the kind of the high end and turn down the drive for themselves. Um, and you immediately, and the moment then you get, you get a guitar sound at the front of the amp where the mic's going to be, that is closer to what the guitar was, guitarist was actually imagining, rather than them playing something that they think is the sound. And actually, <laughs> the sound they're hearing is, re- is all mostly reflections. It's not actually the thing that the mic will pick up at all. So it, that kind of partly sorts out on its own sometimes. You can go, well, you can hear it's a bit fierce. Let's turn down the gain. And you solve a few boundary effects at the same time. Yes. <laughs> so we go back to the previous <laughs> point. That's a good point. I mean, another one that I've noticed is just understanding that you don't have to point the mic right at the center of the speaker yeah. cone. Uh, yeah. You know, that there's a, there's a wide variety of tone available just by shifting the mic in and out, uh, you know, a matter of centimeters or, or inches. Um, and that, yeah, mm. the brightest, hardest sound may be coming right from the center. And actually you want to point more towards the edge. I mean, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, particularly when you're right up against a speaker cone, you know, you're like three inches away from the thing. Moving a fraction of an inch when you're that close to a cone makes a massive difference to the sound. Um, also, I'm, a, I'm just a huge fan of multi-miking. And if you can stick like maybe a ribbon mic on there as well as whatever other mic you want to put on, suddenly you've got so much more control then when you come to mix it down in terms of getting something that feels a bit warmer and a little less fizzy and, and aggressive. I was about to ask you that exact question, so that that's uh, great minds thinking alike there. Um, okay, let's do one more um, EQ topic before we move on to something else. Okay, this is a bit more specialist, but it's it's a <laughs> it's a subject that's close to my heart. Uh, vocal sibilance. I, li- I like what you did there. It's a subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sibilance in mastering is. Well, I was going to say it's a nightmare. It's much well, less... Wasn't it a real problem with vinyl? It was a real problem with vinyl because, uh, yeah, the too much concentrated high-frequency energy, which is basically what sibilance is, um, would basically, because of the EQ curve of the that was being applied before the signal is cut um, and then there's an inverse curve coming back off, um, it would mean that it was very easy to distort. So DSing was a much bigger part of, well, it was a much bigger requirement of mastering for vinyl than it is in digital formats. Because in digital formats, you know, if you're not clipping, you're probably okay. Um, Mm. And so in technical terms, I mean, obviously in musical terms, it can still be an issue. The, The problem with it at the mastering stage is that you have the whole mix in there. So whereas, you know, if um, you, I mean, I have to say, actually, it can be a huge problem even at the, well, certainly in the mixing stage. I remember mixing uh, a Deep Purple gig a few years back, and I literally had 10 dB or more de-essing on Gillen's vocal, and it was still an issue for me. But um, anyway, (laughs) 
Well, some singers, I mean, you have to face the fact that some singers are just much more sibilant than other ones. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's a nice thing. I had not noticed until somebody pointed it out to me that um, Damon Alban from Blur has um, a gap between his front teeth. So he has this quite interesting whistle to his, to interesting. his tone, um, which it would be a shame to remove, I think, because, you know, it's part of yeah. the, the character's voice. But yeah, in mastering, I mean, we have DSs, we have some very sophisticated DSs that, well, I think I was going to say that they can be effective. I, I think they can often do enough. You know, they can often just yeah. take the edge off, just that kind of remove the painful quality to it. <laughs> um, it will still sound like a bit of a sibilant vocal, um, but yeah, it's an improvement. But obviously it's much better done way earlier in the process. And yeah, I'm curious to hear what your suggestions are at the recording stage. Yeah, I mean, there are. There, I mean, there is actually. If, if a singer is concerned about being too sibilant, there are things they can do with their performance technique to reduce the sibilance. If you slightly voice your sibilance, you you, you turn an S into a Z and a, a a CH into a J. You know, if you slightly voice them mm-hmm. or an F into a V, it it you, from the context of the way you're singing it, it's it's no less clear about what your um, what you're saying, what the meaning is, and yet the, the S becomes much softer. And in fact, this is, uh, just because I happen to be based in Germany, I've dealt with a lot of German singers uh-huh. singing English, and the Germans aren't very good at voicing their consonants. It's not, they don't use them much in, in German, right. voiced consonants. And so the sibilance can be much more difficult to deal with in German than it is, than it is in English, because we tend to voice a lot more consonants. So, uh, But that's something, you, it takes practice. You couldn't do that on the session. You couldn't suddenly go to your vocal, you know, how about you just voice some of your consonants? Because, yeah, no, they wouldn't be able to do that. Or no. sometimes people, like, narrow their mouth on sibilance or turn S's into S-H sounds slightly. I was going to say, that's the one that I've heard, yeah, yeah. is somebody shaying things. Um, and yeah. it, that always... <laughs> It, it's clearly a fine line. Like that, Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Surely you're joking, Miss Moneypenny. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so so you have somebody who you you didn't do the the pre production with them, so there wasn't time to ask them to experiment yeah. with that and get better results. They're in the studio. It's still sounding a bit essy to you. Anything you mics can... are hugely important. Right. I mean, some mics are hideous. I mean, I've always had really bad luck with Rode mics, Rode large diaphragm mics. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just have real, real troubles with this. But yeah, it so makes a difference. In fact, it's one of the things that I most listen for when doing mic shootouts. Interesting. Is sibilance. Because it's it's make it can make such a difference. I mean, mic shootouts are important with singers anyway, because it, you can never predict what, what mic's going to fit with what singer. No. Um, but if sibilance is a problem, then I'll switch to a dynamic or or even to a ribbon. It's it's rarer that I'd go with a ribbon. Um, but yeah, it's a, a kind of a flatter dynamic, something more like you know an SM7 with the little present switch switched off, or the or an RE20 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that can really take the take the edge off sibilance. But the other thing is actually that most people who record vocals in Project Studios. I think put the mic in the wrong place. Okay. Because sibilance is actually directional. High frequencies, you know, are, are, are generally directional. Yep. And most people, when they say S's, they basically send this burst of high frequencies out in a horizontal plane on the level of their lips. And if you see most people singing, they've got the mic capsule directly on that plane. Mm-hmm. So if you literally just move the mic like 30 degrees off axis, a little bit above or a little bit below, yep. you get a dramatic reduction in the amount of 
sibilance. So you don't get that massive over-prominence of sibilance that you get when someone's directly on axis. Right. And that also, it also actually reduced plosives too. So, yeah. The one thing I would suggest not trying, though, is the pencil trick. You know the pencil trick? I was going to ask, t- tell us about the pencil trick in case anybody hasn't heard of it yet. <laughs> it's, this, it's this idea that if you get a, a pencil and you, like, uh, gaffer tape it or, or put an elastic band around your large diaphragm condenser mic so that the, the pencil lies vertically across where the diaphragm is in the, in the microphone and then you kind of sing at the pencil, that's supposed to reduce the sibilance arriving at the mic. The idea of that and must be to break up turbulence or, or to cause turbulence, is it? Is it? A bit, I think it would work probably a little bit better with plosives. I would have thought it would. Right. But as part of the online resources for the book, I actually did some audio examples with it and I could hear no difference. Interesting. I misunderstood so, that trick the first time mm. I heard it and imagined, I don't know how this would be done practically. <laughs> and the mic never quite recovered. <laughs> well, no, actually, so I imagined the point of the pencil coming out towards the singer... <laughs> I don't know how that, how that <laughs> would be rigged up. The distance. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, because the other thing sure is... well sharpened. The proximity effect of, you know, um, it's like you will not approach it. You know, forget about pop shields yeah. and all the rest of it. It's like, anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wonder if you could electrify the pencil. <laughs> um, yeah. It's great. Yeah. Oh, I, li- I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Mic technique. Um, actually, I said this was going to be the last EQ topic, but um, yeah. there are... There was one other very common issue that um, I think is is worth touching on, which is that of resonant frequencies, where you have one particular bit of the EQ spectrum that is either booming out or hooting or ringing out. I mean, again, in mastering, it's an EQ issue, probably. I mean, maybe multiband compression might kind of control things in a certain but i think you'd probably have to get the frequency range so narrow that well i mean it's snare that's that that tends to be the killer for that doesn't it right absolutely um so yeah i mean obviously we can try and eq it out in mastering and hope that it doesn't have too much of a negative impact on anything else um but yeah i mean difficult actually triggering in a kind of a dynamic eq on something as 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 transient as that because you would have thought okay if it's on the snare maybe i could do it with dynamic eq but then you know with the transient element of it i guess i found it can work mainly because it's the body of the tone you know it's the ring of the of the drum um mm. which is a bit slower in my experience all oh, right um i mean especially if you have a compressor that's catching the transient of the snare anyway which obviously often has happened in the mix you know they've they've gone into mm. kind of soften things up a bit well i say this i i rarely use dynamic eq i mean i've mentioned it a few times just because it's a slightly more interesting answer than just straight eq um i mean <laughs> i would say that it, it can work wonders i mean and surprisingly small changes there was i think it's actually in one of my videos somewhere a couple of years ago where i was i just you know i felt like the the whole energy wasn't quite right everything felt a bit lumpy and a bit leaden and Mm. and kind of you know it wasn't moving in the way that i wanted and and i thought well maybe if i eq and i kind of went in there with sort of a little maybe one db dip quite narrow at a specific frequency and it completely transformed it you know it just wow in that instance it just took out but I think that's that's fairly rare, and and that was a, obviously a very small issue. Whereas I think you can have, well, in all kinds of things, you get boomy acoustic guitars as well. You can get resonances yeah. in, in in vocals. Um, so yeah, let's. I mean, but let's stick with the snare for now. What would be your top suggestions for for helping with that at the recording stage? I mean, with anything that's to do with the sound of the instrument, I'll always try and get the sound of the actual thing to be better than it was if I had a problem with it and that would mean speaking to the drummer because I'm no drummer and usually 
I'd, I'd suggest they maybe look at the tuning because it mm-hmm. might be that if they tune it slightly differently, that the, the, the sustain of different resonances will change, or you won't get something that's resonating along with another drum. You know, when you hit the kick drum, the, 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 you don't get a ring on another drum. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, you can put a little strip of gaffer or a bit of moon gel on it. But I think you've got to be really careful doing that because you can easily just kill the rest of the tone dead if you do too much of that. Yeah. So... Again, I'm quite, you know, a couple of bits of that on a drum and I'm, I'm like, yeah, I've gone as far as I can with that. But to be honest, the biggest thing with it is for people not to rely too much on just an oversnare mic mm. and particularly not to put that mic too close if they, the more they rely on it, the less close to put it. Because it's when you put it like an inch away from the head of the drum, it's picking up an area the size of a credit card. And that basically is just a couple of resonances of the of the head. And you get the stick attack, and then you get something that goes, and that's it. So you kind of get a plink every time that the drum gets hit. And it sounds absolutely nothing like a snare drum. Mm. And it's just covered in resonances. And literally, you move the mic maybe three, four inches away, and all of a sudden, you've got something that's so much more useful. Just doing that on its own can solve so many problems that, I mean, I've, I've heard some really horrendously resonant and hopeless drum recordings in my time. And it's usually just because that oversnare mic is way too close. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how about do you think about using more of the overhead sound, getting taking the snare oh, yeah. sound from the overheads yeah. and just kind of absolutely. supporting it with the snare mic? Well, I mean, basically, you've got two choices. You And and I hear so many drum kit recordings where there is nothing that has a snare snare sound on it. You know, they've it's it's you've got two choices. Either... You have to get the snare drum out of the close mics, and one close mic over the top of the drum is never ever going to do that. So you've got you've got to have you've got to multi mic it if you're going to get the whole sound of the snare from close mics. Mm-hmm. And if you don't multi mic it and you just have an over snare, then you have to get the rest of the snare sound from somewhere else. And the best candidates for that, of course, are the overheads. So you have to put the overheads somewhere where they don't just pick up cymbals and this kind of dull little snare spill somewhere in the background. No, where they pick up a, a properly representative sound of the kit with some useful snare tone, mm-hmm. but then your your over your, your over snare mic can just add a bit of attack to, which is really what it's there for. It's not there to sound like a snare at all. Yep. No, I agree. And one final thing that's just occurred to me as we were talking, let's say you've experimented with gaffer, the snare is ringing, you've got the mic placement as good as you can, but you know you need to have mm-hmm. that snare mic there to avoid spill from the hi-hat mic and the, the toms and all the rest of it because of the yeah. way the drummer wants to lay his kit out. Um a little bit of EQ to tape or to hard disk in this case, just to just to pull that resonant frequency back? Or would you leave that for the mix? I would probably leave that for the mix. The, I mean, the good thing with snare, to be fair to it, is that you do the best you can so that you don't have, like, five problematic resonances on it, but it isn't that uncommon that you have maybe one resonance that just feels like it's not quite in tune with the track and so it sticks out mm-hmm. so you can never be quite sure whether it is I and mean, obviously if you tune the snare to the to the track that can sometimes make it that the resonances don't matter as much but if you've got some overtone or something that's that's basically dissonant with the track it'll stick out mm-hmm. and you might just deal with that with a speck of eq and if you do it with a little tiny notch it makes almost no difference to the snare sound so yeah you can then you you, you know when you're recording you can make a mental note of yeah i can deal with that resonance then want to mix it yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't bother doing it on the session to be honest cuz yeah it's it's a smaller detail. Fair enough. Um if it's a big enough detail that actually I feel I actually have to EQ it then I know I haven't worked hard enough with my mics basically. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just before we 
move on from EQ in general and resonant frequencies, I do think we need to talk quickly about vocals because that's the oh, other yeah. place that I hear. Not necessarily huge resonances in vocals, but just nasty resonances. Step away from the booth with your hands in the air. <laughs> <laughs> or step out of the booth and record the vocal in a larger room, I would say. Do you agree yes. with that? Yes. Oh, God, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the worst decisions you can make if you're trying to build a home studio is to use any kind of vocal booth. Even the vocal booths in big professional studios that I've been in usually sound a bit dodgy. Mm. It's you know if you if you if you went into a professional studio and they were doing a vocal session, the vocalist will almost never be in the booth if the engineer knows what the hell they're doing. They'll be out in the room and doing their overdub there because it you the resonances you get in the room are the problem because if the room's any normal vocal booth size the dimensions of the room will put all those resonances into the vocal range. Yeah. And then it's compounded by the fact that usually then when someone builds a booth like that, they carpet the inside or they or they cover the inside with like one inch thick acoustic foam that takes all of the high frequency kind of energy and character out of the room, but leaves the resonances completely unchanged. Mm -hmm. So you get the worst of all possible worlds. So yeah, no. I don't know about the worst of all possible worlds. I did have, I remember mastering one record where I was... You know, it, it was a really odd vocal sound, um, and and I kind of I was talking to them about it, and they're saying, "Yeah, we had real problems with it." They said, "We we basically the vocal booth was the top of the stairs, was the upstairs landing, because the control room was one bedroom, and the band was in the other one, and the singer." And I suddenly it all made sense that the vocalist was singing into this with the, kind of basically this big long parallel echo chamber behind them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with because it was quite a belting vocal, and it was like, yeah, no yeah. wonder. And I was like, I would try something different next time. Um, and one thing, I had I, a great one actually. I had a great one actually where we were recording a vocalist in a, a, like a studio vocal booth, and the vocal was sounding great. And then all of a sudden, it started sounding really weird and kind of comb filtery. And we were looking to see whether we cross patch something and checking the cables and all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly we realised that the vocalist had just opened the curtain behind her. And we were getting this wicked bounce back off the glass behind her. Yeah, yeah. And it was comb filtering the vocal sound. Yeah. I've got another favourite vocal sound story, which it was where the comb filtering in the, the sound was so extreme. I, I, I literally went in and hand-tuned with a linear phase EQ, incredibly narrow notches, all the way up to... Wow. to just get it kind of usable. And I was able... I did, did a few quick calculations and I was able to email the client and just say... I don't suppose you recorded in the, the vocal in a room with these dimensions, did you? And he was like, it's like how did you know that? The, aren't those the bits you live for? That's the, that's the bit where you get to feel that you're a black magician for a moment. <laughs> and, it, and it's actually very, very simple acoustics. But um, yeah. yeah, it's not often you get an, an example that extreme. Um, excellent. The other thing I would say to people listening is um, if recording vocals is... If you're listening to this and going, well, I want to record out of a vocal booth... But uh, I want to also be able to have the vocalist sing along with the band, for example. There's a bunch of great suggestions in Mike's book for different ways that you can minimise spill on the vocal mic, clever stuff with speakers and all the rest of it. I mean, I'm curious to know, Mike, whether I mean, you put them in there. Do you think they work, those techniques, or is it does it just depend? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've done at least a couple of whole albums with just loudspeaker monitoring. There you go, it's, folks. It's, it is brilliant. And in fact, actually... A lot of singers who have real troubles with headphones, because some singers just do. They 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 can't pitch, they can't hear themselves, they can't perform properly when they're on headphones. Mm. 
you can stick them on speakers and all of a sudden they come to life, particularly maybe less confident singers who mm-hmm. don't think they're, they're properly singers. And the moment you stick them out of that rather unnatural situation of being st- stuck all inside their own head and not really being able to hear themselves properly... And yeah, they, they they can just suddenly perform. And people think that the whole loudspeaker spill thing is going to be a much bigger problem than it actually is. There are so many ways you can work around it with various like phase cancelling tricks. But even if you can't, actually, as long as there's nothing in the mix that's not going to be in the final mix, you know, you haven't got click track or something like that, and you've, you've finalised your arrangement, I'd rather have some spill and a really good performance than something that sounds a bit dodgy and is not... Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting when you think about it, because again, talking about classic live albums, the vast majority of those, you know, back in the day, people didn't have in-ear monitoring. Um, Most of those were recorded with a massive wedge monitor blasting straight back at the back of the mic so that the singer can hear themselves in the first place. And actually going back to, I mean, maybe this is going to be a theme of the show is that, you know, don't be scared of spill because... Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking, well, we were talking about close miking. It's ironic that people spend all this time trying to get all this isolation in the recordings and then spend hours, days, weeks, months in the mixing and production process trying to make those sounds interesting and characterful, you know, with more yeah. and more expensive pieces of gear and extreme processing and all the rest of it. Whereas actually, maybe if you were just relaxed a little bit about the spill and accepted some of the the interesting qualities that come from a a roomier recording, or in this case, you know, with a bit of speaker spill or whatever it is, you might get some really cool effects for free. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, I cool. it sounds to me like you've done this podcasting thing before, because that actually does a very nice segue into our next, next kind of area, really. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Why don't you uh, <laughs> explain? It's that sixth sense, it's that <laughs> black magic thing we were talking about. There it is. <laughs> I mean, this whole issue of spill... I mean, what would you say is is the instrument that is most of a prob- most problem with spill when you're when you're mastering stuff or when you've been recording stuff yourself? I mean, honestly, it's a re- I know this from recording rather than specifically from mastering. Although there have been some some cases of it in in my mastering career as well, um, and I can say without a shadow of a doubt, it's piano. Um, right. <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned before with the recording that I was doing back when I was at SRT was in a a nice big room. They had a Steinway C piano, which was uh, a lovely instrument um nice. and i could not get rid of the spill on that uh, we right. i tried blankets i tried gobos we tried lid up lid down all the rest of it the i mean the solution that i came up with in the end was extremely close miking so you know typically people recommend for a piano you know maybe probably a meter back you know from the from the instrument yeah. with a, with a yeah. kind of spread yeah. stereo pair if you want to get a na- nice natural sound and i was literally probably six inches from the soundboard on that yeah. instrument. And if you got the mics in the right place, that could work really well. And it, be- it became mm. a little bit of a secret weapon for me in the sense that having figured out how to get that to work. But still, when you soloed up those those channels, there was a ton of spill in there. So in, in that case, it was kind of a case mm. of just reducing it to a level where it was manageable. And what was it that was bleeding into the piano most problematically? Um, well, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, drums definitely, you know, because yeah. they're just so loud in comparison. Even, I mean, most of the recordings I was doing there were kind of, it was small jazz groups or maybe, um, okay. you know, a kind of, uh, what's the word? Kind of middle of the road, you know. Um, kind of acoustic singer-songwriter maybe. Yeah, you know, where, where it's not a full, you wouldn't typically have a piano with a full-on kind of, 
you know, heavy, heavy guitars and all the rest of it, but just yeah. a bunch of real instruments around the room. Everybody probably either with no cans or one can off. Um, yeah. You know, that kind of, and you wanted the sound of everybody in the room, but it was just a real mm. challenge to to control that spill. Um, and in, yeah. in mastering, there's not really much you can do about it. I mean, it, it, it relates to... Uh, one of the topics we didn't cover in EQ, which is that sometimes you get uh, a mix where, for whatever reason, there's almost nothing happening in the mid-range. So you reach for an right. EQ and bring it up, and that can often work unless there's a ton of roomy spill in there because yeah. suddenly you yeah. get way more of all of those unpleasant room resonances uh, and all the rest of it that yeah. we've just been talking about trying to to control. So... Again, maybe some dynamic EQ might help, or maybe picking out the specific frequencies. But it's very easy to get into a wildly unnatural sounding EQ shape um, when you kind of go down that rabbit hole. So uh, this is one that's definitely best fixed at the recording stage. Do you have any um, yeah. top tips? Well, it's interesting you say that you you find this one the most difficult thing to record from this perspective. But Alan Parsons does too. I quoted <laughs> him in the book. Um, that there are loads of people. I mean, this is a common bugbear of, of recording engineers and actually my advice for it often seems very counterintuitive <laughs> to, to a lot of people it's partly just coming to terms with the fact that you're going to pick up spill on the piano rather than trying to fight it mm -hmm. the problem tends to occur when people try and separate the instruments to try and increase the separation the acoustic separation mm -hmm. because the further away you put the instruments from each other the more the spill begins to sound like reverb. And it's the reverb sound of it that tends to be the problem when you're mixing it. You feel like you can't get control. You can't bring anything up front. It makes everything seem a bit washy. Mm -hmm. So my approach to piano is actually to move the instruments as close together as possible mm. and then treat it almost like the ensemble's a drum kit because you can't space all the elements of a drum kit apart from each other. So then usually the piano mics are the thing that catch the most spill. So basically in any ensemble, I'm looking for the mics that catch the most spill. It's like the drum overheads and the piano mics. And start with those and realize that those are never going to be entirely independent. And that if I'm going to make a change to the balance, I'm going to have to probably do it in the room, either by talking to the players and say, well, you're just too loud. You know, switch to brushes or, you know moving the the players around so that you decide how you balance them in that way and dealing with the acoustics in the room to try and get it to sound much as you were with a drum kit from the overheads to get it sound as much like a finished result from those open mics and then supplement it with closer mics that pick up less spill so i mean if you if you're thinking like a, a jazz combo let's say you have a like a drummer a, a piano and a, and a sax the sax is unlikely to pick up very much spill because you can mic it reasonably close and it's quite loud and directional. But you're going to get sax spill on the, on the piano, you're going to get sax spill on the drums. And so you start with the ambient mics, because then you can adjust how the sax mic sounds according to what you need to add that isn't already in the, in the piano and drum mics. Mm -hmm. And if they're close enough together, it doesn't sound like it's a million miles away, because it's not reverb, it's just a big multi-miking setup. Yep. So, but yeah, so basically my approach is, is not to extreme close mic, but to go, okay, this whole band has now become an instrument that I'm multi-miking. Yeah, it's interesting because it's actually got a lot in common in that sense with classical recording techniques. 
You know, um, absolutely. It's, I was going to say another thing to suggest people don't try, uh, which I have, <laughs> which I have tried, is to the exact opposite of what you're saying. I mean, I think one important thing to say, maybe in a classical approach, you would typically, uh, let's say, the piano is over to the left hand side of the stage, and then maybe you've got some strings um, spaced out on the right hand side. Obviously, you would all ha always have all of the mics facing in the same direction. And for mm. some reason, early on in my career, well, I was I was chasing that separation idea. You know, I was thinking I need a piano sound that doesn't have any spill. And eventually, I gave up on that. Mm. And that's when things started to work. Um, even so, because of the way the room was arranged, it tended to be that the piano mics were facing the piano and away from everything else. So, I mean, I agree with you that the problem with spill is when it's. Uh, well, my point is, it's reflected sound, right? It's room sound. It's the sound of the instruments from far away and even worse from the back of the mic because, yeah. you know, if you're trying to get separation, you've probably got cardioid mics. I mean, another solution might be to use omnis, as you suggested earlier. But if you've got cardioid mics pointing at the piano, then you've got the room sound, which maybe isn't that flattering, from too far away, which introduces a delay and also, um, you know, probably some coloration in terms of the frequencies that might have been absorbed in other places in the room. So you've got this kind of behind the mic, weird coloured off-axis room sound from everything, you know, which is kind of your worst yeah. possible nightmare. Whereas, yeah. as you say, if you actually think, okay, this is all going to be recorded as a piece and I'm just going to blend the elements and the spill is part of the sound, yeah, the, you're, you're going to be in much better shape. And it's about, it's about trying to make sure that the spill sounds good. That's the other thing is that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like things like Omnis and Figure Eights over Cardioids in that kind of scenario, because their off-axis sound is much clearer. Yeah. So that, that gives you, and, and certainly in something in the case like something like a piano, a pair of Figure of Eights, you could actually aim their very clean sounding and really deep rejection plane at anything that was really a, a problem with spill, and that might help you a little bit. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly to do with trying to use that spill rather than, rather than avoid it. And in fact, like you were saying, you know, you, you could like put up gobos and you could try and separate things. But if you've got any acoustic treatment then, if you're treating it as a single group, the only thing the acoustic treatment then is really there to do, or, or your gobos or whatever you have, is to try and manage the room sound. So then you focus all that acoustic stuff on trying to shut down any excessive room sound that you have that's around the group rather than trying to separate the individual bits of the group. It's all, it's all great stuff. And uh, it reminds me of the, you know, these days, back when we started out the, the show, I would always try and have a mastering maxim for, for the end. Um, don't tend to do right. those so often these days, but I think um, it's not really a mastering maxim, but, you know, if you want a rule of thumb for recording, um, it's don't be scared of spill. Um, yeah. Or okay. sibilance, since it features twice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, speaking of sibilance, that gets us back to the topic of vocals. Um, yes. And you were mentioning, you know, that it upsets some singers to feel exposed when they're singing. And mm. I find sometimes that can be a problem in a mix that I get to master, which is that the vocal sounds too exposed in the mix. And that could be because there's not sufficient in terms of reverb, or it could just be that it's way too loud and usually that is something you can help with in the mastering, because usually if you can get the compression right, you can just kind of sit mm. it back and bring everything else up. Or maybe you use some parallel compression um, to, to bring out some of the, the ambient sound in the, in the mix. Or I can imagine like the side signal is probably going to have a little bit more of the ambience to it that you can kind of pull that up a bit, perhaps. Yep, absolutely. Um, there's, there's, I find it is something you can often help with, but 
not always. And again, it would be better addressed. And I think the, the reason it's an interesting example is because you, typically that would be a mixing situation, mm. but actually there are things you can do in the recording as well, right? Yes. People tend to think of it less. And I mean, you're right that in any recording situation, or in most recording situations, you tend to end up with the vocal sounding a bit drier than everything else. I mean, even if you record a whole band in one room, the vocalist is usually not the loudest thing in the room, which means there's less spill on other mics and they end up sounding quieter or they end up sounding drier than the rest of the um, ensemble. But and, and the simplest way to do that to, to deal with that is to uh, apply some ambience reverb, of course, and mix down. But a lot of people forget you can quite easily collect an impulse response of the recording room mm -hmm. while you're tracking. Literally just pop a balloon, record it on all the mics, and you can use that um, kind of WAV file to make a passable stab at recreating that, that reverb to add to the vocal later on if you need to. Nice, like that. And similarly, um, I mean, this again, this is another quote in the book, uh, Paul Epworth, who did uh, like Skyfall and various other stuff. Um, he was talking about how he will think of where the vocalist is in the mix and then actually adjust the miking distance accordingly. And he says that that actually solves a problem that you sometimes get with like really big tracks with big vocal performances is that if you move the mic further away, it doesn't feel like you're having difficulty gluing them into the mix. Because you've got a slightly more distant perspective from the mic. You know, moving the mic out of the way doesn't, doesn't just pick up more room ambience. It also picks up a different perspective on the singer's sound. It picks up more of their whole body. And that, that makes a difference in terms of how close you perceive it, how much it seems like it's sitting back or forward in the mix. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, that's really interesting. And I think the other thing that occurs to me is, I, I guess you could say that arrangement is not really necessarily a recording issue, but... A, I, th mm. I think it is, in this, especially if, if the arrangement is being built as part of the recording process. You know, if you have a band who are super rehearsed and come in and know exactly how they want to do things, but if the mm. song is less developed and there's a, there's production happening in the recording process as well, then ideas like doubling vocals or mm. adding some extra harmonies um, can all help support the vocal and help bed it into the mix um, do you agree or do you think that's actually much better done at a different part of the process? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly the the uh, double tracking something is kind of a blending treatment if you look at it in certain ways. I mean, it, it's not much different than adding a short delay, but it's a slightly more organic delay. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 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 double tracking does have a blending character. The only difficulty with double tracking is that if you double track your whole vocal, it tends to sound a bit depersonalized and bland after a while. So it, it it's it's a more of a spot fix than it is a a global fix mm. for me. And of course, the moment you get into into double tracking, that's it gets difficult with vocals and indeed things like guitars as well. If you're too far into layering without thinking pretty carefully about it, again, this is another thing that I get a lot of problems with when I get receive multi tracks to mix, is that a lot of double tracking and multi tracking of things has gone on and very little thought and arrangement has gone into doing that so you don't it doesn't really help you at all that's a great point and it's a it's a nice segue by you mike into the next topic that we wanted to talk about which is you know you can have this mastering challenge of just basically a wall of sound yeah. and, and the the example i've picked out is as you mentioned either guitars or vocals where you know because these days especially where track counts are virtually unlimited you know you can have stuff where there are so many guitar parts or so many <laughs> vocal parts um 
and it's just this kind of turns into this homogenized lump really of sound it doesn't yeah. you know it doesn't doesn't have that kind of the variety and the the flavor and the text you want and again this is something that's really challenging to do with mastering i mean sometimes the reason it's sounding cluttered is because of a build up in a certain frequency range and you know mm. the, the right notch eq can just open things out beautifully yeah. this is one of those occasions where maybe mid-side eq in my experience could be a good tool because you know if it's vocals and they're or, or guitars and they're spread out in the image it might give you more control you know the ability to open up some space in certain parts of the image whilst leaving the, the mid intact for example or vice versa again maybe a little bit of judicious automation just to kind of ease things in and out at certain points to, okay. to get a little bit of contrast or potentially i keep mentioning dynamic eq even though it's something i hardly ever use but again <laughs> it's, it's it's something that might give you that extra little bit of control you know maybe uh i mentioned you know using a different frequency to to key something so maybe you have at a point where let's say uh, a particular guitar part comes in it just pulls back the vocals in another frequency range just to allow them to speak a little bit more or vice versa um mm. that kind of thing but it's always a compromise because typically yeah. the mix is so comp and if you're talking about a wall of sound it's so dense anyway you know it, it basically it is what it is um do you have any recording suggestions for people who want to to build up a bit of a wall of sound but keep some definition keep some clarity and some space in there yeah, probably two main things I would say. The first thing is actually, this is a kind of a, one of the most general points in all of recording, um, is when you're doing this stuff, don't make decisions about the way a track sounds when you're soloing it. Because one of the biggest problems is when you get like eight tracks of guitars, each one of which the recording engineer has tried to make sound huge and fill the whole mix because there's no difference between any of them, and then you add them all together and they just become this ill-defined soup. <laughs> Guitar soup. Yeah, It just... doesn't really have any definition at all. Cancel each other out, yeah. I encourage anyone who's thinking of double-dragging anything to get away from the thought of, oh, I'm just layering up things, and think, no, I'm trying to create individual components of the sound with these things. So yes, I might double-track a, a single guitar part to have some stereo image out of it. But then the next pair of guitars that I put in, I'm not just going to use the same sound or the same part. I'm going to think, okay, what is this missing? What can I add to it? Does it? Do I want to have a little bit of a wah sound to it? Or do I want it to give me a little bit more of the upper notes of the riff or something like that? So that you're consciously thinking, what is it I'm using each layer I'm adding for? And when you do that and each layer sounds different and it's got different characteristics, it's not only more powerful and fills up the frequency range in a more characterful way, but it's also so much more controllable than when you're mixing because you can go, oh, I'm getting a bit too much of those high notes. I'll just turn down that layer a bit as opposed to I'm going to have to EQ eight tracks of identical sounding guitar to try and get this musical result that's impossible to do with EQ. So yeah, definitely that's, that's one of the big things I'd say is get away from this concept of just layering, make the decisions about which parts you add within the context of the other ones so that you're not adding the same thing again. But the second thing I would say, and this is a mindset thing that you can see increasingly happening over time in, in, in the chart music particularly, is not thinking about parts, you know, a guitar part that goes the whole way through a song or a vocal part that goes the whole way through a song, but think about a vocal arrangement or a guitar arrangement. So if you've got, let's say, something simple, let's say you're... you're 
guitar track is just a riff that goes through your song. And there might be different riffs for different sections. But that riff's going to have different features to it. So think to yourself, okay, maybe that little one feature to it, the little string slide or a little upper note or something, I'm going to do that and layer, an, layer another little guitar part just for that bit to give that a little bit of extra colour. Mm-hmm. And you see, that's not just recording of the guitar part. It's making more of the guitar arrangement by kind of giving that phrase a bit more colour, making this other riff or the, the chugs have a different guitar sound than the, than, the, than the main lead part or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same with vocals. You know, you, you, you think, okay, I don't just have a single lead vocal anymore. I have a vocal that is for the first part of the verse and then there's the counter melody that comes halfway through and then there's the pre-chorus vocal sound and then there's the chorus vocal sound and there's the backing vocals for that chorus sound. And all of those will have a different approach and will be designed in context listening so that they fit together. And then you don't get this just sludge of identical, 50, 50 identical sounding tracks all put together. You get a situation where each vocal can be heard because it was designed to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I love that. And you're reminding me, I'm pretty, I can't think of the exact story, but I'm sure I've heard people talking about the recording of Queen albums and the guitar sounds there where, you know, every guitar sound was different. Something was changed. The mic was changed or a cab was changed or uh, whatever it might be. One other thing that you made me think of while you were talking is uh, an idea that I really like, which is, you know, let's say you want to record a little choir of voices as a, as a backing track. Mm. The conventional way to do that is same person or maybe not the same person but one mic one place in the room you record the layers and then afterwards in the mix you spread them out pan them out into a stereo image and try and create some depth by adding reverb an mm. alternative to that if you've got a decent sounding room would be to put up a stereo pair and think okay where would these people be standing if i actually had a little choir or group of singers here and have each part sung with the person standing in a different place maybe even occasionally standing on a chair to get some variation in height as well and i like the way the theme is building up for this episode you know utilizing some of that natural um variety and interest that the the different room sound will give you because somebody's singing in a different place of it rather than just panning an identical thing in lots of different places and then adding some reverb and hoping for the best yeah i mean the example i think of with that is michael jackson and bruce swedeen Okay. He'd record Jackson's backing vocals in stereo. And also, he used this really cool thing. There's a picture of it in the book that he would stand Michael Jackson in a kind of a mini forest of those circular tube trap reflectory things. Yeah. Acoustic reflectors. And it meant that because his vocal sound was made up quite a lot of these first reflections that don't sound like reverb, they just kind of bolster the sound. Mm -hmm. It meant that as he was moving around, his sound remained more consistent because it was built up of all these reflections and it gave it a kind of a livelier and a naturally stereo sound. And so I'm, I'm trying to imagine that. I'm going to have to look at the book to see this photograph now. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, I mean, and, and um, what? Who's the Kelly? The Kelly, I can't remember his surname now, the, the lead singer of the Stereophonics. They recorded a bunch of his vocals on the first record, I think, in, in the Stone Drum Room for exactly the same reason, because the early reflections off the stone just enhanced the vocal tone. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely uh, we're, we're bigging up the idea of room acoustics in this episode, which, oh, is, yeah. Oh, yeah. which is great. We've been talking for quite a long time and we've got inconsistent bass on the, on the list. It can be a real challenge in mastering because let's, you know, if, you've, yeah. if you've got a bass line where certain notes are speaking and others aren't, again, the obvious solution would seem to be EQ, but there's a very good chance that that's going to conflict with something else in the mix. 
bringing oh, out yeah. you know too much of the low end of the guitars or maybe the drums or whatever. The low end's so critical as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Particularly these days. Yeah. So yeah, in recording, I mean, the thing that occurs to me is just actually having some compression in the chain going to the amp. I mean, there's a certain amount of natural compression that a, yeah. and a guitar amp is going to give you anyway, but there's no harm in, in bolstering that. Would you agree? And uh, what other suggestions do you have? Yeah, I mean, I'm in particularly thinking of, of like melodic bass instruments. There are a few like quick wins, I would say. The first is just don't record them too small a room because the room resonances can play absolute havoc. Mm-hmm. And if you are recording it in a room which has room resonances that are featuring the in the in the, the uh, are problematic, just move the the amp or the player and the mic around the place to try and get as even a a low end response as you can. I mean, I almost always do a kind of a low end scale check when I'm setting up mics. Mm-hmm. I get the guy to play the lowest octave of the of the instrument and see if there are any notes like leaping out. And if there are, just try a different mic position, move the move the instrument around. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I would say is that. A lot of people record bass amps with kick drum mics, and I would like to encourage people not to do that, if at all possible, because so many kick drum mics have those that really heavily contoured frequency response. Mm. And so as the bass moves around in its pitch register, some pitch registers will be much more powerful than other ones, depending on where they hit this weird hilly curve. You get a kind of a slightly one-note bass effect from it. Off. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to suggest that people don't necessarily have to use enormous bass cabs um yeah I, one of the best bass sounds i ever got i can't remember the the band that i recorded it for but literally the bass was i don't know it can only have been an eight inch driver at most mm. um sounded fantastic um you know it's if you can get it out of a, a really decent pair of hi-fi speakers you can get it for an instrument as well especially if it's not being driven too loud because obviously you know there's a difference between a re- recording and an amp on stage i'd always take a di as well Yes. <laughs> Just for a safety thing. Because the thing is, the great thing is if you low-pass filter a, a, a DI, it doesn't change the character of the thing you add it to. Because it's all the upper frequencies that give the sound the character. Right. And if you, you, can just, you can feed in a much more consistent DI signal, potentially, especially if you've got right room resonance problems. Great point. But then also be careful of your delay when you blend them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Phase. <laughs> Absolutely. Phase, phase, and phase again. So, actually, phase probably plays um, an important role in the the next topic we want to move on to. If you've been listening carefully and haven't fallen asleep by this point, you'll have noticed that we moved from, broadly speaking, EQ-related topics to balance topics, you know, spill, walls of guitars, exposed vocals. Um, The other topic we wanted to mentioned we had dynamics on the list and we decided that we've talked enough about dynamics on this podcast. Um, (laughs) And actually, a lot of it is probably just about what's capturing there in the recording and then managing it effectively in the mix stage and later the mastering stage. Um, Mm. There are a couple of interesting examples, but we really don't have time for those. Um, But the other topic we wanted to nail was just talking about stereo image. Yeah, And I think, you know, we we can sum up probably most of the problems by saying it's either going to be too narrow, too wide, or too extreme, by which I mean... Too much in the left, centre and right, and nothing filling in the spaces. And again, well, actually, in recent years in mastering, there are some pretty amazing tools coming out of the the perceptual coding technology. You know, the, the stuff that's the same technology that gives you MP3 files and that lets Ozone have a, a music rebalance tool and that lets Giles Martin remix 
Beatles recordings, even though everything was recorded on one mic. Um, that same technology is being used by companies like Leapwing in plugins that will actually enable you to widen the mid element of a signal or tweak the mid side balance without affecting the overall stereo width. And if you use them in moderation, they can do some real magic. But yet again, it's better if that stuff can be dealt with at the recording or the mixing stage. Well, I mean, it's so difficult if you've got contrary like stereo issues that are fighting against each other, you can't correct one without impacting on the other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, if and if you're not going to use that kind of the more sophisticated stuff, which if you push it too far can give you kind of artifacts in the sound, mm. um, then really it's it your choices are mid-side balance or narrowing the stereo image by bringing in the the left and the right panning, which is, you know, then you get problems of phase cancellation, which is how we got into this mess yeah. in the first place. So yeah. Yeah. in terms of improving <laughs> that situation at the recording stage, Mike, um, what would be your suggestions? I think a lot of it comes down to just a lot of misunderstandings about stereo mic technique. Um, because, I mean, if you think about how many stereo mic techniques there are, and it's an absolute minefield. I, I feel, in a way, I feel quite sorry for a lot of people approaching like Project Studio Recording and thinking about how to deal with stereo miking because there's so much, there are so many possible variables. I mean, I've, I think there are a couple whole chapters of the book where I talk about it. It's such a big kind of area. And a lot of the problems that you get with things being too narrow or too wide, I think can be traced straight back to just a misunderstanding of what a given stereo mic technique, what its characteristics are. I mean, like the the the, the crossed, uh, like 90 degree cardioids, XY, that some people call it XY, is actually quite centre heavy. It's at least like two or three dB heavy in the middle of the image. So it's it's naturally narrow. Mm -hmm. So because people think that is kind of a standard technique, they'll put it up without thinking about whether it's narrow or not. And their recordings have just come out not feeling as wide as they should be. On the other side of that are then things like um, people tend to space their drum overheads really far apart or their piano mics really far apart or they'll record an acoustic guitar with one mic down by the bridge and another one up by the neck and all of a sudden the whole image is widely stretched right across the the image and the thing begins to kind of collapse if you if you hear it in mono um yeah there, and there and there are so many mic techniques where you can fall foul of that um bloom line is one that people often come a cropper with you know the the idea of, of a crossed pair of figure of eights mm -hmm. just because it has a fancy name people go oh i'd like to use that that sounds kind of arcane and black magic-y and they stick a bloom line xy thing in the middle of a drum kit and its pickup angle is only about 70 degrees and like the symbols are all coming in completely off axis completely out of phase and just disappear in mono and yeah there are so many situations where people are just misusing stereo mic techniques without realizing that they're not all equivalent and you can't, the other thing is you can't correct a lot of the things that are the problem. I mean, if you have wide spaced overheads and then you, and then you say, oh, well, the image is too wide. I'll just grab my pan controls and, and, and move it in or adjust a, an MS plugin to try and deal with it. What you do at the same time is that you narrow your room sound at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you, your overheads are now the right kind of image, but then it sounds like it's recorded in a corridor. So a lot of these things that people think are changeable with MS techniques aren't you know you can't bail yourself out of choosing the wrong mic technique just by using an ms plugin mm. 
the way you're going to avoid that is to just listen really carefully when you're setting up, when you're choosing your microphone techniques. You know, don't assume that a 90 degree XY pair is going to be right. Listen to it. If it doesn't feel wide enough, tweak the mic position. Um, if you're using widely spaced, well, use the mono button a lot <laughs> to make oh, yes. sure that you don't have oh, any yes. uh, any cancellation issues going on. I mean, I guess to a certain degree, you can you could use a delay on one channel to try and improve those, but it depends what you're recording, right? Because the, the difference, the distances to different, let's say, drums in a drum kit, if we're thinking about overheads, yeah, you know, you could get the delay right so that one of them is working well in mono and then it causes problems with one of the others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of these cases, it's just a question of understanding what the kind of natural or most most forgiving pickup angle is for a given set of microphones, a, diff a given placement. So, for example, I mean... People often just gravitate towards ORTF, you know, this one that's like 17 centimetres apart and a 110 degree angle, without thinking what its characteristics are. And it does actually have a pickup angle that it is best designed for. And if you put people outside that pickup angle, they're all going to be squashed into the edge of the stereo field. Similarly, that kind of microphone setup actually recesses the balance of the central sounds. So if you have your ensemble all the same distance from the microphone, anything that's in the middle of the stereo image is going to sound further away. It's going to be lower in the balance. And just knowing that that's the characteristic of an ORTF, it gives you an idea of, okay, what's a good place to put that mic setup? And what kind of applications might it be applied to? Why might I use ORTF rather than Bloomline or rather than XY or rather than a spaced pair? That's the bit of stereo mic technique that I think a lot of people misunderstand. It's realizing that things have um, have a pickup angle that is their natural pickup angle, and they have certain characteristics that will affect the balance. And you can't kind of correct most of that stuff after the fact. I guess again, though, it comes down to. I mean, that kind of presupposes or, or requires quite an in-depth understanding of the strategy you're, you're using. I mean, because you're absolutely right. You know, you, you read about oh X Y or Blundline, or whatever the techni technique mm. might be, and assume that that's going to give you a great result. And they can, mm. but it depends what you're recording and, and how you know everything is, is laid out. But the other thing to do is just listen and not assume that because you've put a particular configuration of mics in front of a particular instrument or ensemble of, of players, it's going to sound the way that you want, and just listen and make sure. You know, I mean, the difficulty with a lot of this stuff, though, is that... Um, you'll often get people doing that kind of stereo recording on location, on headphones or something, or in a situation where they can't really hear what mm -hmm. they're doing. And I think definitely getting hold of a vector scope display, if you're doing anything like that, to give you some idea of how wide your image is or whether it's leaning off to one side or something can make a make a big difference. Um, but But having some understanding of the kind of where to start that's going to be roughly in the right place so that if you can't really hear what you're doing, for whatever reason, then you, you can still get something that's reasonably passable, is 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 usable. Yep. No, absolutely. I, so it's it's a it's a big topic, um, which is why Mike's book has two chapters devoted to it. Um so <laughs> if all of this is sounding like Greek to you, then you you definitely might want to check it out, which is probably a great place to bring this to a close. So um hopefully, you know, we there's been a lot of stuff in here. Hopefully there's been some interesting things in there for you listening. If we're going to sum this up, I think for me, it's all about thinking ahead. The idea that a, a decision that we make at the recording stage 
could not be fixable in the mix or in the production process and might still be a problem at the mastering stage, it kind of almost sounds a bit far-fetched, but it's definitely the case. Um, you know, you often hear this idea mm. of uh, record as though you're mixing and mix as though you're mastering. I think I think that's good advice. You know, if you if you think about how good does the original sound source sound, you know, is it a good sounding instrument? Is it in a good space? Um, we've talked a lot about spill and the, the sound of the acoustic space in this episode. So thinking about the room that you're recording the thing in and how that, do you want to try and remove that from the recording? Do you want to try and include it in the recording? And if, you know, if you do make sure it sounds good, you know, mm. achieving that by moving the mic placement, we talked a lot about mic placements and mic choices. Obviously the actual performance can make a difference, you know, um, yeah. in terms of, you know, inconsistent bass that we mentioned. In my experience, a lot of bass guitars have one string that will sing out a lot more than the others. If the player is aware of that, yeah. can just play a little bit softer when he or she moves to that string, that's going to help. Um, and of yeah. course, you know, <laughs> things like arrangement, things like considering doubling up some parts or I, I heard a really early on my, my career, I don't know whether this is true or not, an idea that back in the day, people would add acoustic, strummed acoustic guitar to even a big heavy rock track. Oh yeah. Just to get some harmonic interest in there. Have you heard that one, Mike? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's a quote quote in the book book about it. Um, a guy I, I actually was an assistant for, Tony Platt, the guy who did uh, Back in Black and Highway to Hell and things mm -hmm. like that. He's a huge proponent of putting a, a big kind of jumbo acoustic guitar in there with your with your big electric guitars because it gives them a, a bit of rhythmic dynamism mm -hmm. that they don't otherwise have, particularly if they're quite heavily driven. And keeping it almost at the level where it's imperceptible. You know, it just becomes part oh, of yeah. that, yet another element in that in that big wall of sound. Um, it's another great idea. And uh, I know that your book is full of many more of these, Mike. So um, <laughs> I think um, a hefty plug is more definitely deserved at this point in proceedings. Um, people can get it anywhere you can get books, right? Indeed you can. In fact, um, I have set up a special page to support this uh, episode of The Mastering Show on the Cambridge MT site. That's cambridge-mt.com. And if you go forward slash mastering show, it'll take you to a page I've set up that links to some of the audio examples, like the pencil trick one, um, and some of the like stereo recording resources that I've... Uh, drawn on to to make to to to, to write that, that section of the book and also if there are any discounts currently running on the book or in its accompanying video course those will all be on that page too fantastic and we will put that link in the show notes as well at themasteringshow.com um, along with any other links that i might think are relevant to to go along with this episode so mike thank you so much for taking the time to um broaden the scope of the mastering show um a little bit. actually we thanks I, I i think we i think no one has ever done this before it's like fix your master at the recording stage i think this is pioneering <laughs> either that or we'll, it'll be get tumbleweed <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be someone who'll go okay fix the shrink wrap in the pre-production <laughs> i think uh regular listeners are gonna are gonna love it um and it's nice to to, to broaden out the the topics every so often so yeah thank you so much a pleasure as always thanks very much for having no it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you mike's books are excellent you should check out uh, both of them and anything else that he's up to i should also mention the fantastic resource at the cambridge mt site of 
multi-tracks that you can download and practice your own mixing and or mastering skills on. Uh, in fact, if you've seen the series of videos I did for Sound on Sound magazine, Mastering Essentials, um, on their website, you'll already know that I used examples from his site. And I think there's something like, is it maybe 100 songs now there where you can download the unmastered WAV files? And Yeah, I think that, I think it's 150 unmastered WAV files now that you can use for mastering practice. Highly recommended. And of course, the links to that will be on the Mastering Show com as well so mike thanks again thanks to john for editing the episode as always and thanks to kaylee law for letting us use his music thanks for listening 